Welcome back to the Jesus Chronicles. I'm Sandy Laws, and this is episode number 11. Well, last time we looked at what happened in the Judean desert between Jesus and Satan. Jesus' temptation by Satan turned out to be an act that solidified his role as the Son of God. Since it was clear from Jesus' responses that he intended to fulfill his Father's will no matter what. According to our timeline, the next story about Jesus is set at a wedding in a small town called Cana. It is here that Jesus performs his first miracle. Now, this story is unique to the Gospel of John. In fact, it is the first of five unique stories in John's Gospel that fit into our timeline of Jesus' life. Well, we have already learned a little bit about Matthew and Luke in previous lessons. So let's take a closer look at the Apostle John. About the Apostle John. John was a fisherman in Capernaum, a thriving town on the northern shores of the Sea of Galilee. Fishing was a big business on Galilee because thousands of fish were caught in this freshwater lake, then dried or salted and transported all around the region. Fish was an important food staple and a primary source of protein in a land where meat was only prepared on special occasions. John had an older brother named James, and they were the sons of a man named Zebedee. Together, the men were in a fishing cooperative with Peter and his brother, Andrew. I'll tell you more about Peter and Andrew in an upcoming episode. John's mother may have been Salome, based on an inference from Mark and Matthew's gospel, where Salome is mentioned as the mother of Zebedee's children. Salome is also considered to be the sister of Mary, Jesus' mother. If this is correct, then John and James were cousins of Jesus on his mother's side. John's friend and business partner, Andrew, was a follower of John the Baptist. And it is possible that John came with Andrew to hear John the Baptist preach. Andrew became interested in Jesus when John declared that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah. Later, when John and the other fishermen disciples had come to know Jesus well, Jesus called John and his brother James to be his disciples and apostles. The Gospel of John is centered around the miracles of Jesus and these really big theological themes such as life and death, lightness and darkness, belief and unbelief, truth and falsehood, and love and hate. The author wanted to be sure that everyone who read his Gospel came to the same understanding that he had, which is that Jesus was the Son of God. As I said, we will study five stories from John's Gospel that fall in line with our timeline of Jesus' life. 
They are this wedding at Cana, the cleansing of the temple courts by Jesus. Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus, his encounter with a woman from Samaria, and the healing of a nobleman's son. About marriage in ancient Israel. This story is about a wedding and what happened when the wine ran out. But before we get into it, let's take just a short look at the topic of marriage in ancient Israel. Marriage was considered to be the norm back then. Consider there is no word in biblical Hebrew for bachelor, since men were expected to get married. People got married at a very young age in the first century. A boy was considered to be a man by his middle teens. It's safe to say that boys could be as young as 13 and girls as young as 12 when they were betrothed to be married. Now, normally the young man's parents chose the bride, you know, an arranged marriage. The groom's parents would consult with the bride's parents and often neither of the young people involved were included in the discussions. In those days, Israel was a very patriarchal society. The father was the absolute head of the household. And whatever he said is what happened. After the wedding, the wife moved into the husband's home until the son could provide a home for his family. The new wife became a part of her husband's family, but was still considered an outsider to the family until she produced a son. The birth of a son sealed her status as a family member and gained her recognition by her husband's family. Sons grew up to be their mother's ally and an advocate for her interests. And sometimes the son would advocate for his mother, both against his father and his own wife. Thus, the wife's most important relationship in the family was with her oldest son. Now, this little bit of background helps us to understand Mary's request to Jesus in the wedding story and also Jesus's response. The Miracle in Cana. Okay, so now let's take a look at this wedding story, beginning with John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. So it's clear that this wedding was for someone that Mary and Jesus knew, perhaps a relative or a close family friend. I mean, at the very least, it must have been for someone who Mary cared about because her effort to deal with the wine situation. We can't be certain who the disciples were that came to the wedding with Jesus and Mary. But John had already mentioned five disciples by this point in his gospel. Andrew, Peter, Philip, Nathaniel, and an anonymous disciple, perhaps John himself. So let's keep going with the story. 
When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. In ancient times, wedding celebrations lasted a really long time, as long as a week. And the financial responsibility for the event was squarely with the groom and his family. It was an important social event that wasn't just centered on the bride and groom the way that weddings are today. I mean, if you think about it, the bride and groom were really young. So the focus of the celebration was more centered on these two families coming together. And there was intense social pressure to get it right. So to run out of supplies would be a really big embarrassment. Exactly what Mary was expecting to happen when she brought the wine shortage to Jesus's attention, it's hotly debated. Was Mary just passing on this surprising and upsetting news to Jesus? Well, this can't be the case, since just two verses later, she instructed the servants to listen to what Jesus tells them to do. Clearly, she was expecting something to happen. But was she expecting Jesus to perform a miracle? Well, I mean, this too is problematic, since John insists that this was Jesus's first miracle. I think it makes more sense to think that Mary turned to Jesus with the problem at hand because she relied on his resourcefulness as her eldest son. Jesus would have been Mary's strongest advocate, helping to take care of her and his extended family. The family's fortune may have depended in part on his job as a carpenter, and like any widow, Mary leaned heavily on her children. Okay, back to the story. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. So Jesus responded to his mother with his kind of odd address. In some versions of the Bible, like the NIV, it is translated as woman. But I think this really is too distant. I think closer still would be something like the Southern expression of ma'am. Jesus then asked her a question, which literally translates from Greek as, what to me and to you? I mean, while his tone certainly wasn't exactly rude, but certainly not how we expect Jesus to reply to his mother. And this idiom actually translates into, what do you and I have in common as far as the matter at hand is concerned? I think we can safely conclude that Jesus was rebuking his mother, even if mildly. But why? Well, the conclusion that I came to is this. Jesus was declaring his freedom from submitting to any human agendas or manipulation. The purpose of his coming to earth was to do his father's will, and he would not be deterred by anyone. Not even Satan, who had tried to do his best to do so. Okay, so this had to have been hard 
for Mary, right? She had carried him in her womb. She'd given birth to him. She'd nursed him, taught him to walk, and now was dependent on him as a productive family member. But now, because Jesus had begun his earthly ministry, everything, including family ties, had to be subordinated to his divine mission. When we look at other interactions between Mary and Jesus during his ministry, we can see this as part of a pattern by Jesus to purposefully establish some distance between them. Least we think of this as harsh. Remember that while on the cross, Jesus makes provisions for her future care. The fact is that Mary, like every other person, had to come to Jesus as the promised Messiah, the chosen one, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. Neither she nor anyone else could presume to approach him with a privileged status. Jesus then adds, my hour has not yet come. And of course, this makes us think, what hour is coming? In John, the hour of Jesus' death and resurrection is constantly said to be not yet until the arrival of the Gentiles in chapter 12, verse 23. From that point on, with Jesus very close to his death on the cross, the hour is said to have arrived. The Gentiles signify the spreading of his message beyond the Jews to the entire world. Once that has been initiated, Jesus' earthly ministry begins to draw to a close. Now Mary responded by telling the servants, do whatever he tells you. I mean, she just shook off his rebuke, and she spoke to him based on her faith in him. I mean, Mary basically approached Jesus first as a mother, and then was rebuked. And then she approached him as a believer, and her faith was then honored by Jesus. More of the story. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. And then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and he said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine, after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. All right, so Jesus turns his attention to the six stone water jars. In the context of this wedding event, the large jars would have been used for the guests to clean their hands as prescribed by Jewish law. 
But for Jesus, the jars and their use for ceremonial cleansing represented the old order and custom, which Jesus came to replace with something better. He replaced the need for ceremonial cleansing with being cleansed once and for all times through belief in him and baptism. The servants responded to Jesus' request to fill the jars with freshly drawn water from the well. The jars, servants, and Jesus may well have all been out of view from the guests at the event. This is supported by Jesus telling the servants to take the wine to the master of the banquet. So this first miracle would have been witnessed by a small group of servants assisting Jesus with the jars and the few disciples who were with him. Note that John doesn't give us any description of how Jesus turned the water into wine or what, if anything, that he said while doing it. The servants filled the jars to the brim. This quantity of wine, together with the quality of the wine, brings a message of perfection and abundance to mind. The master of the banquet was called to taste the wine. He was surprised by the quality of the wine, expecting it to be inferior, since the first jars of wine, and presumably the best, had already been consumed. He went to the bridegroom and remarked that he was surprised by the holding back of the good wine. His response, you have saved the best for last, sums up the ministry of Jesus. Since God's sending of his son was his greatest act of love. John tells us that this was the first sign through which Jesus revealed his glory. John always refers to Jesus' miracles as signs, really emphasizing the significance of the action rather than just a marvel performed by Jesus. The signs confirmed to the disciples that placing their faith in Jesus was well-founded. As Jesus embarked on his public ministry, he had to define his relationship to his disciples and that even included his relatives. He used this event to gather disciples and reveal to them his true identity and mission. The story of the wedding in Cana tells us in part how that happened. The wedding at Cana also gives us insight into our relationship with Jesus and his relationship to the world. Now, when we consider what this story means to us today, here are just a few thoughts I have about it. First, just like Mary, we have to recognize that our relationship to Jesus is one of being a disciple. The very word disciple means being a follower or a student of Jesus. Jesus is always in the leader role, and we are always in the subservient role. Second, no believer has an insider's track with Jesus. Mary didn't, and we don't either. We can draw closer to Jesus through our discipleship, devotion, and prayer. But all of us have equal status in his eyes. I mean, we should be grateful for his absolute fairness. 
Third, as we shall see, miracles are a way for Jesus to reveal his status as the Son of God. His power to perform miracles is a reminder to us that he cares about us and his creation. And last, God's timing is his alone. No one tells God what to do and when to do it. We have to learn to trust and appreciate God's perfect timing in our lives. Well, next time on the Jesus Chronicles, we will travel with Jesus to Jerusalem. It is at the temple in Jerusalem where Jesus boldly declared himself to be the new focus of worship. We see John continuing with his theme of pushing aside the old to allow for the new. Thank you for listening to the Jesus Chronicles podcast. And don't forget to check out my website at www.thejesuschronicles.com.